This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, from the depths of trauma and despair to the summit of Kilimanjaro, our guest, Belinda Bauman, has seen it all. We talk about her new book, Brave Souls, experiencing the audacious power of empathy and the journey that brought her to writing it. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Belinda Bauman. She's founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. She's also the co-founder of the hashtag Silence is Not Spiritual, a campaign calling churches to break the silence about violence against women. She's a sought-after speaker and contributor to publications such as Newsweek, The Daily Beast, The Huffington Post, and Christianity Today. She recently published a new book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. Just a quick note that this conversation deals with sensitive content. If you have young children listening or if you are triggered by descriptions of violence and trauma, you may want to use your discretion. Thank you. Belinda Bauman, welcome to Things Not Seen. David, it is a joy to be here. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, too. I want to start our conversation with a story that you tell in your book, Brave Souls, from the side of a mountain. And uh, it's it's actually the story of a friend of yours by the name of Alice. And I'd, I'd like for you to start out kind of telling our listeners what you and Alice and the other group of women that were there with you were doing on the side of that mountain. And then from there, I want to sort of get a little bit more about what exactly happened between you and Alice. But let's start with why you were a group of women on the side of Mount Kilimanjaro. <laughs> It's been three years since we climbed Kilimanjaro, and I think I've probably asked myself that question every day (laughs) since. Years before we decided to climb Kilimanjaro, I met a woman named Hope that taught me how to love. Her name was Esperance. She is a survivor of war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I had the opportunity to interview her for an article I was writing on Mother's Day in Conflict Zones, Esperance so generously opened her story to me and the other women that were in the room. It was stunning. She was gathering firewood in the Virunga Forest with her husband and ambushed by two rebels who shot her husband in front of her brutally raped her and left her for dead. When she was found, she says that the sisters that found her were her life source. They were sent in to the Virunga forest to scour for women who had experienced violence at this level, were either unconscious or so traumatized that they were afraid to 
come out from the shadows. And Esperance's Hope's story was yes. one of so many. Yes. Is that and so it wasn't an isolated case. It absolutely wasn't. Yeah, this was happening to to hundreds, thousands. How many? At the time, it was eight out of ten women experienced multiple cases of rape or sexual violence in the Congo at the time. Esperance, this was, she had fled her village and was with her husband at the time, so had a reasonable amount of protection. But after they shot her husband, she was left alone. Her children had scattered before that in the fleeing from her village, and she was alone at this time. The women that found her in the forest were sent out by a local church, and they had been trained as trauma counselors, lay trauma counselors, who found women who had similar experiences to Esperance, and they themselves had experienced violence of this kind. When they found her, they revived her, they fed her, they clothed her, they took her and to the local clinic where she underwent one month of rape treatment. They stayed with her for the whole time. She underwent nine months of maternal care. She decided to bring the child that she conceived in rape to birth. And her son, David, is six years old now. Then they stayed with her for another additional year as a friend as she was training to become a trauma counselor. And so... The experience that she had, she survived. Mm-hmm. And and you, you're careful in your book, Brave Souls, to distinguish between using the term victim and the term survivor. And you choose the term survivor because she has made it through this experience. And well, Esperance chooses the term survivor, which so, is really important. So her term is survivor. And as a result of having gone through and being cared for herself in this traumatic experience, mm-hmm. she now chooses to turn and to be a caretaker for others in traumatic experiences which means that she has to deal with everything around that whole experience, the community she lives in and their perception of her, her own perception of herself and the trauma she's experienced, and raising a son who is really doesn't belong to anybody in the community's eyes. So she is empathetic to not only the experience of other survivors— She has chosen to respond to her own suffering in such a way that she is now more empathetic to even the experience of the young boys who eventually become perpetrators in violence like this. Because she is raising a young boy in a culture where rape is judged without impunity. It wasn't her suffering that impressed me, David. It was her response to her suffering and all the suffering around her that changed my life. And you say it changed your life. So at what point did you meet her? You say that this was six years ago. When did you meet her? Well, her experience was six years ago. I met her five years ago. I met her mm, about nine months after uh, after the trauma that she experienced. She had gone through a relative amount of narrative therapy of care from the church that found her and the training and come through to a place where she was able to and willing to articulate her own story in an amount of health for the sake of others. And I think that in her generosity to share her story, 
she gave me permission to seek after my own story, which tells me a preliterate woman in Congo who I had traveled an ocean to visit became my mentor, became my teacher in this area of empathy. I owe her a debt. Well, help me understand and help my listeners understand why it was that you traveled that ocean because we're here recording this conversation in Chicago. I think people don't often say, well, I'm going to go around the world and I'm going to meet someone who's been through a horrible experience. What was the circumstance that brought you there? Sure. It's a... (laughs) I like to say it was something as small as a thumbprint and as large as a mountain, both of them at the same time. I had a very dear friend who was listening to an NPR segment about the rape levels in Congo. And, I mean, just the statistic alone of 8 out of 10 women in the region that we visited is breathtaking. And you would think, five years ago, that the world would have cared more at a war crime level like that. It didn't. That was an isolated article, an isolated discussion that she heard. She came to me. We discussed what we could possibly do and kind of left it at that. At that point, I think between us, we thought it was a good idea to care about something like that. And then my husband placed a little article next to my breakfast on Mother's Day. (laughs) And it was the article was titled, Democratic Republic of the Congo, the world's worst place to be a mother. And I literally, when I looked at the article, I thought to myself, really? (laughs) It's like Mother's Day. (laughs) Come on. But he knows me well, and he knows that my life needed a bit of disruption. You say in your book, Brave Souls, that you were unknowingly drinking complacency as if it were medicine. And that line stayed with me. And that seems to be speaking to what you're describing right now, that you you were comfortable at your breakfast table, and this really shocked you. It shocked me. But it shocked you in, in the right kind of way? Is that fair to say? I think that it shocked me in the way that it was meant to as opposed to the dysfunctional way that a lot of this overwhelming news can hit us. War zones, South Sudan, immigration crisis, famine, food, flood, all of the things that we can read about at our breakfast table and choose the luxury of caring about or not caring about. For this one, I really do want to credit credit God (laughs) because there was a moment where I could have chosen to set the article aside, but I read the article. And as I read the article, something in my soul started to stir. And when I think about my soul, it felt like my brain and my heart engaged to motivate me somewhere. That was very different. For me, And I know that sounds very simplistic maybe to your listeners. However, I think that we're presented with those opportunities all the time throughout our day. And we decide maybe just to engage our heart or just to engage our mind and to choose not to engage our action. It took all three lining up for me then to call my friend and say, I think we need to go. The good people at World Relief made way for us, and we took a team of six women 
in and we spent five amazing days just doing interviews with women, learning to listen to a very uncomfortable story that may not come all in a 45-minute segment. We took a long time to learn to listen and let the layers of a very complex story roll over us and sometimes overwhelm us, sometimes cause us to smile because of the spirit that we saw rising in the women and sometimes want to numb out and shut down. Other times wanting to, you know, email my congressman in the moment. All of it, all at once. But never losing sight of the woman telling the story in front of us. That was such a different experience to me. So those moments of engaging my head, my heart, and leaning into a very uncomfortable situation became the basis for this idea that maybe empathy is a spiritual discipline, much more than we think. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Belinda Bauman. She's founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. We're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Belinda Bauman, founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. We're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. Now, in the first part of our conversation, you used this word a couple of times, empathy, and it is very much the the backbone of your book, Brave Souls. But for our listeners who maybe have only encountered a glancing blow across the bow of empathy, what is empathy? (laughs) That is the question. Yeah. Uh, And it was for me as well. And I... (sighs) I think empathy isn't what we think it is. Well, let's start actually with what empathy isn't. Let's start with with the opposite of empathy in your book, antipathy. When we say that someone has antipathy towards something, what are we saying? As we talked about a few seconds ago, the the idea of engaging what you understand about a person, what you feel not just towards a person, but what you think another person might be feeling— And those two things combine to be motivation for all your actions towards that person. I think when we talk about antipathy, what's missing from that is this idea that 
I don't know, I don't care. Yeah, you talk about seeing a t-shirt that literally said that, don't know, don't care. Oh that was so instructive for me because when you started there, it, it was like, oh, I get it. That's what antipathy is. Mm -hmm. And then as we're moving back from antipathy, so, so someone who has no desire to know you and no desire to care about you. It's almost like an aggressive, an aggressive apathy. Well, and, and you, you then move from there to talk about apathy. And, and in part of your, your way of, of thinking about this, if, if antipathy is don't know, don't care, apathy then is I know and I still don't care. And I still don't care. In the <laughs> words of the great immortal Homer Simpson, he says, quote, I love this quote. My son's taught me this. Just because I understand does not mean that I care. Mm. <laughs> We have, for me, this was where I was when I met Esperance. Mm -hmm. I Googled Congo, right? I read Adam Hochschild's great work, King Leopold's Ghost. I spent a great deal of time figuring out the statistics of the women that I was going to meet. And yet, I don't know that I really cared just yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Something was driving me there, and it wasn't until I was challenged to sit in the tension of not just knowing but caring mm -hmm. so if antipathy is don't know don't care that can look a lot today like maybe even protest it can sound angry it can sound even righteous to a certain extent but unless you've actually leaned into the tension of somebody else's pain and you understand both that person's limitations and their blessings or their benefits, you're not going to actually be caring or understanding that person. Now, is I don't want to mischaracterize what you just said, but, mm -hmm. it, but it sounds as if you were almost going to the Congo as kind of a trauma tourist at first, like a person who was there to observe, but you were going to keep a plate of plexiglass between you and the pain of it. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. I think at the time I was less cynical about it and I thought of it more as like a, a diagnostic position. You know, there's a bit of anti-empathy rhetoric going on right now that says that empathy makes bad policy because you're, you can only empathize with people that are like you. I was nothing like Esperance except as I listened to her story, I was and leaned into the horror and her humanity, at the same time, she's a mom. She's a woman. She had four children. She was married. We had, I had a frame of understanding for her. And I was able to reach into my own life and say, where is anything in your own life, Belinda, with, with a semblance of pain that you can touch? so that you can understand her more. It was really actually a brave thing to, to do for her to tell and for me to listen. And together we met in an eye-to-eye, shoulder-to-shoulder kind of space. Very unlikely friends, and mm. still to this day. Well, you, in your analysis, if antipathy is don't know, don't care, and if apathy is I know, but I still don't care, Making the move then to empathy is both knowing and caring. Mm -hmm. And that's what you've just described, is a willingness to be touched by 
not just their story, but how their story overlaps with your story. Yeah. Is that a fair way to say it? It is. That is an excellent way to say it. Well, and in the context of talking about this, you make a statement in your book, Brave Souls, that I just want to linger on for a moment. You say, much that I did and much that I knew needed to die. Hmm. What, you, what do you mean by that when you're saying that in the context of being confronted with Esperance and, and seeing and finally kind of letting that guard down so that you could be touched by her pain? I think any time we are confronted with our own ignorance and privilege, we have that choice to make. Will I, will I see this for what it is? Can I acknowledge that maybe had Esperance and I met in different circumstances at a different time that I might have glanced over her? Or I may have even spent time with her and then come home and made this kind of statement, which I've heard many times. And I, I cast no dispersion or judgment on people that make this statement, but I think I understand it differently now. Oh, my goodness. They were so poor and lived in such dire circumstances. I just don't understand how they could be so happy. Now, Esperance had a horrific story but the meals that we shared together and the we we definitely got jiggy man did some serious dancing it was wonderful and we got to know each other in both the pain and the joy and in reflection in brave souls as i wrote it i thought you know choosing to stare down the privileged existence of whether or not I was going to care about Esperance, whether or not I was going to pay attention to that article in Congo, whether or not I was going to not only pay attention to the article about Congo, but then also care about what was happening in South Sudan and wake up the next morning and confront the fact that my father had pancreatic cancer and care about the poverty rates of my sisters living in the inner city, that there was capacity in my soul for all of that, and then make the decision to engage it all. One of the things that I, I don't know whether this is your characterization of how Esperance had come through that suffering or whether this was actually words that she spoke herself there's a phrase in your book, Brave Souls, they have learned to suffer well for the sake of joy. Is that a characterization of what we're talking about? When you yes. say that you, you danced and you're dancing with a woman who's been through probably the most traumatic thing that I can imagine, mm -hmm. the death of her husband, the loss of her children, and, and then this horrific experience, and yet she was dancing? She with, was. Yeah. Yeah, and we were eating and we were laughing and we were engaging in life together. That moment of, I can't possibly understand the nature of somebody's joy unless I understand the true nature of their pain as well. This is a woman full of potential. She is full of possibility. And I, had I only tried to lean into her pain with caring or this kind of lopsided sympathy that I can offer. Sympathy as defined as I care, 
but I don't necessarily need to know what's going on. I realize vaguely that Esperance went through something hard, but my heart can't take it. If she tells me the real story, can't do it. Actually, I can do it because it's her story. And if she did it, I can do it. Well, and you say it's her story, and you went there with a group of women to gather stories. And in the process, not only did you get her story, but in order to share her story, you had to get permission to share her story. And that leads us then to the thumbprint. It does. Help my listeners understand how the thumbprint factors into all of this. (laughs) This is that. A thumbprint is so everyday and so mundane that we barely notice it. We leave it on everything. We mark the world with our thumbprint. And that's what Esperance did for me. Because I was writing for, a, for an outlet, and One Million Thumbprints at the time was becoming. Uh, we were back then known as 10 for Congo because we were trying to get folk to just give $10 so that we could build capacity and programs in Congo for women experiencing violence and war. We were writing, as I said, about Mother's Day in the Congo. Esperance, when we left, we asked, we didn't want to be present when she was deciding whether or not she was going to give her story to us. She told us our story, but we were not going to tell it unless she had full understanding of and given us permission to do so. Her pastor sat with her for a good eight, nine days and just talked through this permission form that we had. And as far as I understand the story, she got super frustrated by about like day eight and had him flip the paper over (laughs) and write in capital letters, because she's preliterate, tell the world my story. And I'm sure, like, there weren't any exclamation points, but in her voice, I could hear the exclamation points. Because she's preliterate, she did not write her name. She stamped her thumbprint. Now, that thumbprint for her is all of herself. This is everything that she brings to her ability to vote. Her abil- And voting in Congo is a big deal, right? Her ability to gather support and foodstuffs and medical care from the UN, for her to engage in uh, accessing a clinic or any of the things that bring her life. So for her to bring her thumbprint and stamp it under that statement, tell the world my story, that was the only thing that showed up in my email inbox when I opened it. It was, I clicked on it. My friend Larissa from World Relief had sent it to me. I clicked on it, and that was what I saw as my permission. And I think if I had to nail a thesis to the wall or to the door, it would be this. Some things that start out as nice options become mandates if you pay close enough attention. Her words to me were no longer optional. They were my engaging of my brave soul with her brave soul. And we met over a thumbprint. So I took my thumbprint 
at that point, I had her permission slip, and I thought, or her permission granted, and I thought, oh my gosh, this is such a brave act of leaning into not only her story, but she was representing all of the stories that she had listened to over time, and maybe even those that would come. And I wanted to put my own thumbprint next to hers, and so I did. And I gathered about 14 other women who were willing to do the same thing, adding their thumbprint to Esperance's. And then we said, oh, goodness, now what are we going to do? Because we know the story. We care about the story. It, we feel responsible. What should we do? How do we, as we said, we use the phrase, how do we light our hair on fire? so that we can get the attention of a world that doesn't really seem to care about the millions of Esperances that exist today in war zones. That led us up to the side of the mountain, <laughs> and Alice was one of those beautiful thumbprints. Well, let's get back to that after a break. We'll, we'll remind people of who you are. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Belinda Bauman. She's founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. We're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Belinda Bauman founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. We're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. So a moment ago, you had us with 14 thumbprints on a page. You had placed your thumbprint next to Esperanza's thumbprint that had given you permission to tell her story, the mandate to tell her story. You had gathered other thumbprints, and then you were sort of looking at this saying, what do you do next? That was what led you to be on the side of Kilimanjaro. Help me to bridge that gap because you're there with a piece of paper with thumbprints on it and, the, and then you're on a side of a mountain. How, how did you get from one to the other? <laughs> you know, what do you do when somebody in circumstances beyond their control makes a reasonable ask of you? Esperance didn't ask me for pity, certainly. She didn't ask me, she didn't even, she didn't ask me for goods and services. She didn't ask me for even programmatic help. She asked me for one thing, tell the world my story. I had taught middle school for years prior to this. And I knew that story is a very powerful thing, even for people that are completely attention deficit. So <laughs> gathering kind of my smartest, most motivated buds and saying, care about this and being beautifully motivated by the fact that they joined me in caring and knowing about Esperance. We decided, like I said, to light our hair on fire. How do you do that? How do you gather the attention of, as Esperance said, the world? Well, I don't know that we gathered the attention of the world. However, we wanted the attention of at least those in our circles. Lynn, my friend, 
and I talked extensively about what an attention getting, what an advocacy understanding might look like. And it led us to the metaphor of a mountain. What is a mountain? A mountain is up and a mountain is down. You respect the mountain. And you also, you have to conquer the mountain to a certain extent. But not just the mountain. Because it sounds like from the story that you tell in Brave Souls, it's really not the mountain that you're conquering. In many ways, you're conquering obstacles in yourself. Is that a fair characterization? That's exactly what most experienced climbers, folk that have summited much larger mountains than Kilimanjaro, would say that the moment of whether or not they are going to succeed at their goal is when they confront their own limitation and the own realistic understanding of what, of themselves. And yes, that was what every one of us summiting that mountain had to deal with. In that way, Esperance's story, when she says, tell the world my story, having the world connect with her story was only one level. Having the world connect with the mountain of getting over themselves to connect with her story was a much bigger mountain. So let me see if I'm tracking. So Esperance, her mountain, if we want to use that that image, is first of all, being able to forgive. Yes. And then secondly, being able to reclaim joy. Okay. For the group that you then took, you were wanting to do something unthinkable, which is let's take this forgotten part of suffering in the world and let's make it public in some way. So in that sense, you're covering an insurmountable obstacle and you're, you're giving yourself kind of permission to do that by climbing the mountain. But then also, I love what you just said, because you also said that there was an obstacle in even having that knowing and caring in yourselves. Am I, am I reading all those levels in what you're talking about? Absolutely. If empathy is more than we think it is, if empathy, it can't be just limited to feeling what other people's feel. You call it in your book, Brave Souls, muscular empathy. Yes. It's got to have, and you said it earlier in our conversation, it's not just the head, it's not just the heart, but it's action. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, as I did research for the book, I like the uh, terms that have come out of the psychosocial sphere, which are empathetic receptivity. Lou Acosta, he coined both that term, empathetic receptivity, as the caring part, as will I open myself up to others so that they can affect me? I love that, right? Will I care? Empathetic understanding, then, is seeing the, the cognition, seeing the perspective of another person as agency. They think, they have opinions, and those are all couched in a context. It's my responsibility to understand that. So both empathetic receptivity and empathetic understanding join together to become a full understanding of what empathy is, both knowing and caring. Here's the next part. To the point that all my actions towards that person, towards that community, towards that people group, towards humanity, towards the earth, 
are informed by that knowing and caring. And if you look at it, it's a beautiful, elegant equation. Knowing plus caring plus motivation equals empathy. So the University of Michigan is coining the term motivational empathy. Now, I didn't know about that until after we climbed the mountain, but that's exactly what we were going for. Where is the responsibility for what we know and what we care about, the tension we're leaning into, what is ours to do? And so the mountain, it's almost like you were treating that as a training ground for what was going to come after. Mm-hmm. But in the process, let's talk about that training ground. Because maybe some of our listeners have climbed mountains or gone up hills or have taken a walk, maybe. But that's nothing compared to what we're talking about here. This is one of the tallest mountains in the world to the point where even oxygen becomes very scarce. And you have to be very careful of your physical well-being, mm-hmm. both going up and coming down. And in that context, now finally we're ready to talk about Alice. Yeah. So what was Alice's experience? You were walking in this group. You had guides. Yep. And you were wa- You start at night is, is what you say in your book, Brave Souls. Yeah, there's a reason why you start at night. Yeah, and you start at night partly because you don't know what you don't know. And if you don't know what you can't do, you can— <laughs> But so you're, you're. There's a whole worldview in that, there by is. the way. <laughs> but you're watching each other's lights two by two as you're going up the mountain. Mm-hmm. And Alice's light gets farther and farther behind. Mm-hmm. Now, that's your experience of Alice. But yeah. then in your book, Brave Souls, you also give the reader a glimpse of what Alice's experience was. What was that experience for her? Taking Alice's perspective was really important for me to reflect on. Alice, not only was I turning around and watching Alice and her guide's light getting farther and farther, if I place myself in Alice's mind at the time, she was watching a trail of lights get farther and farther away from her. Her guide, Frank, who was a wonderful guide, Tanzanian but spoke very little English, her oxygen tank that she was carrying at the time was chafing her and was not working in its proper way. And she couldn't communicate that effectively to him. While I kept turning around and looking for her and asking our guide, where's Alice, what's happening? She wasn't able to communicate at all or get the information. So not only was she watching the light pass from her sight, about a mile away, she was also unable to access the information, any understanding of what was happening at that time. So she was left alone to her own thoughts. You describe these thoughts in your book, Brave Souls, as very negative. Mm -hmm. I mean, it begins to be a litany of just the worst things that you can think about yourself. Now, did she communicate to you that that was what she was hearing or in her in her mind or or is that your imagination of what she was feeling? No, she was feeling that as we ventured, uh, as we progressed on the mountain later together, she was able to communicate that there were things that she heard even as a child about not being enough, enough physically, enough emotionally, tough enough, strong enough, sporty enough, pretty enough, smart enough, those those 
messages that we may not just hear with our ears, we hear it with our souls as we're growing, those all came flooding back to her at the moment that she was pretty sure she had been abandoned. She had been left by herself to attempt one of the hardest things she's ever tried to do in her life. So I don't want to spoil anything, but did she make it? (laughs) So people have said, they said to our team, you sound like Han Solo in in, in Star Wars where he says, don't ever tell me the odds, right? People told us the odds all the time. You realize that only 35% of people that attempt to summit this mountain actually make the trail that you're doing it. Hey, did you know that Martina Navatilova couldn't summit the trail that you, you know, I'm like, helpful, not helpful? Really? <laughs> Do we have to have that conversation <laughs> now? Three months out? Thank you. However, we had spent a week together with the women of Congo prior to climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Not in an attempt to replicate my experience with Esperance, but in a real understanding that we weren't climbing the mountain to light our hair on fire for these women. We were climbing it with them. They were coming with us. So to collect their stories and to lean into them to gather the motivation we needed to summit, we all really wanted to honor that. And we really desired 100% of us to make it to the top. That was not the odds. Gravity conspired against us. Our bodies conspired against us. Our, obviously, the voices in our head conspired against us. And our own ability to sustain that motivation conspired against us. So that was that summit. That was a bigger mountain for us to conquer than even Kilimanjaro. Alice, as she fell behind, kept going one step at a time. As the rest of the team summited to the first summit called Gilman's Peak, there are three summits at Kilimanjaro, and half of the team that summited Gilman's decided to go on to Uruhu, which is the third summit, and they made it, which is great. They came back, and as they came back, I was surprised at how quiet it was at the top of Kilimanjaro, which gave me a lot of time, well, not a lot of time, gave me a relative amount of time to listen for a still small voice. And I kind of shook hands with God and said, if Alice is halfway or more, by the time I come down, God, if you give me the strength, I'll summit again. I'll go with her. I will walk alongside of her if she'll have me. As everybody came back from the peaks and we started to make our way down, the words of our guide, Abraham, our senior leadership guide, he told me the night before we set out on this five-day adventure, he said, Mama, if you think the summit is hard, it prepares you for the descent. And it really truly was the harder part for many of us of the mountain 
the coming down. I mean, just physically, your toes are beating against the front of your boots step after step with sore feet already. Oxygen is, the oxygen levels are changing even more dramatically because you're moving more quickly. And at the time, I'll be honest, for us, the first snowstorm of the season was moving in quickly, and I could see fear in our guide's eyes, which I had not seen at all for the whole time. So snow was starting to roll in. It was starting to get dark, and they were trying to get us off that summit section very quickly. That was the moment that I met Allison, and she was not going to not summit. (laughs) So she was determined. She was determined. And so did you turn around and go back up to the top? Yes, we did. I put on her ox I put on my oxygen tank and Alice took the hose um, and put it so I carried the oxygen tank. Alice kept the hose in her nose and took hits of oxygen when she needed it. And we took my guide up to the summit, and she summited Kilimanjaro. Her words to me were, Belinda, I, for the sake of my daughters and for the sake of the daughters of these women, I really, really want to make it to the top of this mountain. And we cried. We cried and we danced and we hugged and we cheered because at that moment, our shared perspective was not just one of our pain, but we now understood each other's joy much better, too. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Belinda Bauman, founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. We're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Belinda Bauman. She's founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. And we're discussing her recent book, Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. So in your book, Brave Souls, you mentioned a good friend of yours, Lynn Heibel, and she has a question that is formative for her. What is mine to do? And so at this moment, Belinda Bauman, I'm going to ask you, as you've been making this journey for the last several years, as you've been gathering the strength of these women's stories and these women around you, what is yours to do? I had a good friend named Lisa Sharon Harper ask me 15 months ago. She said, Belinda, you care deeply about women over there. 
But there are women here who experience gender-based violence and rape. And you would be surprised at the equivalency to a war zone that they live in. And I had another one of those moments where I thought, oh, Lord, what is mine to do? Do I just care and know about my sisters in a geographic region? Or is it time to expand my discipline of empathy to another place? And it was. So One Million Thumbprints focuses its advocacy and its capacity building, specifically in conflict zones, by definition. We chose to engage the story of our sisters who experience gender-based violence and sexual harassment inside the church to our advocacy outreach in partnership with Freedom Road, which is Lisa's organization, and Imago Day, which is an amazing woman named Emily Nielsen-Jones. And the three of us began to gather our smartest, wisest, most amazing women that had been in the business of trying to light their hair on fire to get the attention of the world for the sake of women who experience gender-based violence in the church here in our backyard. So sometimes expanding our empathy circles work in reverse, right? I had to go to Congo (laughs) to tap into, I don't know, a superpower maybe? Can I equate it? Is that too corny? And then to begin to bring it home to my own backyard and say, I can't just care about my sisters there. I have to care about my sisters here. In the midst of all of that, David, it has been a permission-giving experience for me, starting with Esperance, listening to the stories of women who trusted pastors, trusted elders, trusted people within the church, and that trust was violated in a sexual way towards them, to my own story. I was always someone who said empathy is not limited to our own experience. If we have imagination, if we have the ability to take someone else's perspective, we do not need to be rape survivors to know and care about the experience of a rape survivor. We don't need to be survivors of international conflict to know and care about someone who's survived war. That can expand to any experience. What I didn't expect was my own story to be part of this. And though I still have many questions about my own experience of sexual abuse, I know that the bravery that I saw in Esperance is the bravery that I desire for my own story. I want to be one who forgives. I want to be one who contributes. I want to be one that 
experiences her Me Too moment in the context of hope and not despair. One of the things that Esperance gave you was her story. Mm-hmm. Then she gave you her permission to tell the story. Mm-hmm. But she gave, she gave you something else. You watched her dance on the other side of that. In your own confrontation with your history, are you at the point where, like Esperance, you feel the capacity to dance? Or do you feel like you have been dancing? I feel like I have permission to dance, which I think is an, a daily thing. I no longer underestimate my own ability to get myself into a rut or into a ditch and to even see my own story as done and over with. I think the permission from Esperance to dance is in the midst of much more than at the end of. I think the middle of any journey is always the hardest because the beginning always starts with excitement or at least um, a kick in the pants, right? Motivation. And the ending has some form of completion. So you're, you're, you feel like you've arrived somewhere. It's the middle where you need permission the most. So I find myself here. I find myself hoping for joy and ready to receive it and believing for it. Now, one of the results of these conversations with Lisa Sharon Harper and others and your experiences with Esperance in the Congo, as you came back and you started to to examine what was happening here in the United States, you said about 15 months ago, that's the same time that the Me Too movement was really mm-hmm. taking off, hashtag Me Too. Mm-hmm. And then there was a response, hashtag Church Too. And then there was the response that you and others came up with was trying to address the silence about the violence towards women in the church, and that led to Silence is Not Spiritual. Tell us a little bit more about that. As I said, the question of whether or not I was going to know and care about not just women over there, but was I going to know and care about women here in our own backyard, kind of arose out of, like you said, the the church too, particularly the church too hashtag, that idea that a person can move trustingly into a church setting as a woman and experience violence as part of that trust was was as when I finally let it sink in was as shocking to me as hearing about the nature of the violence that Esperance experienced that set me on this path of well in some ways, our backyards of our churches a bit like a war zone for some women. Now, I know that can sound like hyperbole, but I, I don't think it is. I think there is an ex, a lived experience, especially for women who experience intersectionality of women being women of color and in their gender, a vulnerability inside the church that can be as terrifying as living through a war zone. If I extend this whole idea of empathy into this silence is not spiritual, I come out on the other side saying something like this. Violence against her 
is violence against me. And Lisa and Emily and I and the other women that took the time, it was actually eight days beginning to end, to write a theological statement addressing the nature of violence against women in the trusted church sphere. Not just from a psychosocial perspective, but from a theological perspective. If we are to say violence against her is violence against me, and then we look at the nature of this kind of holy empathy that we've been talking about, knowing and caring to the point of action, who is the originator of that? Well, it's, it is Jesus. Jesus showed up here on this earth, not just wanting to walk a mile in our shoes, as we like to say. He put on the whole skin. He put on all the weaknesses and the foibles. He put on the pressure and the tension and the pain physically, emotionally. He dwelt in a context that was a bubbling cauldron of conflict and a great deal of violence being done against women in religious contexts during that time. If I look at how Jesus responded to women during that time, his honor, his care, his willingness to engage and to follow the leadership of women was evident in most everything that he did. And each time he engaged a woman, he also called on the name of his father, their creator. That led me and Lisa to think, well, what is the most theological statement that we can make inside of silence is not spiritual? If violence against her is violence against us from a communal perspective, could it be that violence against her is violence against God. If she's made in the image of God, if Jesus honored God as her creator in everything that he did on this planet, then wouldn't harming her be harming her creator? That is as fundamental a statement as we can make. Inside of that statement, those two coupled together is what is ours to do. I am calling as many people willing to light their hair on fire. <laughs> you don't even have to climb a mountain <laughs> to do this. To sign a statement, sign this theological statement, calling the church to know and care to the point of action for the sake of the sisters experiencing violence inside the context of silence in the church. It is the exact same thing that we're trying to do with One Million Thumbprints. We are asking the world to hear the story of violence against women in war zones and to care in the halls of power where people can make decisions whether or not women will be helped or whether or not they will be hurt by public policy both here in America and abroad. So we will, as we do with the Silence is Not Spiritual petition, we take that to places where there is power, where there is the need for understanding inside of churches 
that systems harm women. We also take these gathered thumbprints. As we put our thumbprint next to Esperance's, we're able to go into halls of power and say, hear her story, know and care about it, and let it inform all your actions towards her. Both of them, one million thumbprints for women in extreme violence in war zones, and silence is not spiritual, the acknowledgement and understanding and care for women in our own backyard, in our churches of all places, are the same thing. They are acts of holy empathy. In your book, Brave Souls, you make the statement that the world is settled for competition over compassion, civility instead of love, and transactions instead of community. I, I just want to say that when I encountered this book, I expected that I was going to have that plate of plexiglass between me and the story. And I found myself brought to tears more than once when I was reading it. It's a profound and powerful book. Your story and the stories that you have been permitted to give are tremendous. I hope everybody that is listening to this gets their hands on a copy of this book. And I I just want to say again how much I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. It was such a joy. Thank you so much. We've been speaking today with Belinda Bauman. She is the founder of One Million Thumbprints, a movement of peacemakers advocating for women in the world's worst conflict zones. She's also the co-founder of the hashtag Silence is Not Spiritual, a campaign calling churches to break the silence about violence against women. She recently published a new book called Brave Souls, Experiencing the Audacious Power of Empathy. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.